Start time. Well, that's the sound guy telling us it's time to start, I think. Music cuts out, that means get to work. How's everybody doing? Doing good? Nice. It's uh, been a crazy week for some of us. I think a lot of people are grateful to be here, and just uh, we're here for God this morning. We're here to praise, we're here to hear his word. Um, so if you want, we'll stand, we'll pray, and we'll uh, praise. Thank you, Father, for your love, for your grace, just for uh, the ability, the privilege of being here this morning. Uh, we lift these songs up to you. Um, every word honor you and glorify you. Um, just uh, set our minds and hearts on you this morning as we do praise you, as we give thanks in good times and hard times. Uh, we pray for Leonard as he preaches. Give us ears to hear. Uh, just speak to us today, God. Let us be... Um, more importantly, open to what we do here, what you're saying, uh, knowing that it always requires us laying ourselves down more and more each time. Uh, so we uh, we love you. We praise you for this time, just for uh, the announcement today and what it means in the grand scheme of things, and just for progress, God. Uh, just pray for your church to be unstoppable and for us to be part of that uh, in any way that we can big or small just part of growing your kingdom God we love you we praise you and give this time to you Amen. Uh, this song Rich taught us last week um, still kind of new but it's pretty pretty easy to get a hold of um, but it's, uh, it's good meanings even if you don't you're not a singer if you don't want to sing you can kind of tune the music out and just read the words um, so Now lift your eyes 
seat for just a minute. Uh, we got a few things that housekeeping wise we want to take care of. It's great to see you all by the way. Great to see you guys online worshiping with us in spirit and uh, as we gather today we are getting anchored in the things of the Lord of course and that is a good thing. Um, just a few things I want to make you aware of uh, because communication is just kind of weird right now. One of, the, one of our esteemed members uh, that, that we know and love has passed away uh, recently from a non-COVID-related uh, illness, and that's Peg Stewart, uh, who many of us um, knew and, 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 and loved and enjoyed being around. Uh, so we want to uh, just uh, offer a prayer for her and her family. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, at the end of our service, um, I'm also going to have a special prayer for um, uh, another pair of friends of, of many of us, uh, and that is Bob and Linda Martin. And Linda, of course, is, is languishing right now and, and probably will be going home uh, pretty soon. And uh, w these are very special people that have been a part of this body uh, uh, for a number of years, and uh, we want to just uh, be in concert with other people that are praying and so we're going to be praying for them at the end of the service um, as uh, hopefully uh, we're not only praying for those, those concerns, but uh, any that, that come up. And for our purposes, um, uh, please just, uh, you can text us or email us or just let us know uh, how we can help and how we can be there for you. Um, I also have a, another um, very critical announcement. Um, our, our former um, office administrator, Patty Eaton, uh, wanted to make sure that we were aware that Pat Franks has a birthday today. 
I don't know if you guys know who Pat Franks is. Many of you do, but in case you don't, I think you ought to just stand up, Pat, and let everybody know who you are. <clears throat> 89. Well, congratulations and happy birthday. Yeah. Well, her name should actually be Pat Jokester Franks. But this time, the joke's on you. Thank, thanks to your other friend, Pat T. Eaton. You can thank her later. So thanks, Patty, for letting us know. And uh, we just want to celebrate that. But I also want to uh, talk about a new development that we're having here at church. And I'm going to ask uh, Matt, uh, where's Matt at? There he is. Okay, Matt's going to come up and tell us a little bit about what, what the next uh, thing is here at First Christian. Good morning. There we go. All right. So, exciting news. Uh, the children's ministry, pre-K through 5, we're going to open up uh, September 20th. Um, so, that's exciting news. We're also looking for volunteers that would be able to help just with our, our policies, you know, having two adults to help out. Um, if anybody's interested in that, see myself or contact the office. I'll be at the studio after, after service. A um, couple of things about the, the look of what it's going to be for the kids. Um, when we arrive, everybody's going to be in the sanctuary. Um, we're going to do a song, and then Brian, Leonard, whoever's up here is going to dismiss the kids. We'll meet one of the leaders in the back. We'll take them down to the fellowship hall, um, and then they will be assigned a number that will go with them till, till the end. Um, you know, once we get back up in the hallway, once we use the check-in system. Um, but they will have a carpet square and a box down in Fellowship Hall with that number and also supplies for the day. Um, and then, you know, this way we, you know, sanitizing is there, disinfecting and whatnot, just with the state regulations. Um, we're asking that all kids three and up um, wear a mask uh, just because of the mandates set out by the state. Um, and then uh, there will be no breakfast. And once worship service is over, we're going to ask that the parents come and pick them up down in Fellowship Hall. Um, this was temporary. We want to stress that. You know, our ultimate goal is to go back up into the kids' wing, do the check-in system, you know, have fellowship there, and do all that. So we will keep everybody updated through social media, emails, things like this. Um, so that everybody's well informed. And then uh, if you are in grades 6 through 12, Sunday nights we're having youth group via Zoom. Um, hopefully down the road we'll be starting to meet in person. Um, but also back in January, February, all those kids, and if you had, didn't get one, have a sermon notebook that we encourage you to bring with you, fill out, and, you know, might be a topic of conversation that night for youth group. Um, like I said, if you have any questions, contact the church office or myself, um, and then I will also be in the studio after service. Um, I just want to share this with you. Um, it's on the back of my shirt. Uh, 
But it's Luke chapter 2, verse 52, which is the, the verse, the theme, really, of um, orange curriculum that we do with the, with the kids. And it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and his people. And that's what we want our kids to do. Uh, we want our kids to grow in wisdom. We want them to know who he is. We want them to be able to go out and share it with other people as well. So let me pray. And then if you have any questions, feel free to come see me afterwards. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this exciting and um, great opportunity that we have to reopen um, our children's ministry here, that we can help the kids grow and know more about you, um, that we can just be safe through this all, and, and we just ask that you just guide us and direct us and help us to see anything that we might need to change down the road, Lord, and that we can just focus on you and give it all over to you, knowing that you are in control. And we love you and thank you so much for what you do for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I thought of one other thing, but I don't remember what it was now. Um, yeah. Anyways, there, there, there's going to be a letter sent out to everybody. I, it's in the letter somewhere. Um, so, that's it. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. We appreciate you doing what you're doing. You're helping us out with our kids, and uh, you're also obviously full-time employed with um, uh, what has become True Value Hardware, and a manager there, as well as a manager of uh, his own family alongside his wife. Uh, so he's got a pretty full plate, and yet he has a pretty deep desire to see the kids of FCC be connected, stay connected, and stay rooted, and as we just sang, anchored in the things of the Lord. It's that one thing that just keeps us stable, keeps us focused, keeps us going in the right direction. And probably more importantly, it's the one thing that keeps us all uh, aligned in purpose. And right now, that's not always an easy thing to do, is it, to look at the the news and see people that are aligned in purpose. It's more like, yeah, people are divided on their opinions about how things should be. B, that's an interesting word, B. You ever have experiences with bees at your house? Anybody have any stories? Anybody have any horror stories when it comes to bees? Anybody have any trauma stories? <laughs> Pat, Pat does, okay. I've had a little bit of my own this year, uh, this summer. Uh, I have a hot tub that had to go into a state of repair, and I opened it up and uh, was working on it, and then all of a sudden I got called to do something else. And uh, so when the honeydew list gets written, you follow that decree to the letter. And uh, if you don't, well, then you're not a cooperating citizen of the Moore family household. So... I left it open, and then I looked out to go to repair it the other day, and I noticed that there were bees inhabiting the hot tub now. Oh, man, that has not been fun because they are determined, and they are relentless. And as it stands right now, they are pretty anchored in my hot tub. And as uh, you open up the different panels, you find that they have sentries on the watch out to make sure that no one invades their space. Well, I've had my battles for sure, and I'm not going to go into the gory details of how that's going because it is still going. They are still fighting, and I'm still fighting, and they seem to be winning. 
So for therapy, which uh, I bought a compact tractor to work on Christian's property across the way. So I, I, I'm doing what I've discovered is tractor therapy. I just go over there and I do dumb things like bush hog the grass and uh, pick up sticks and scrape dirt and just check out a little bit from everything. The only problem is there are those things that I'm trying to get away from at my house stationed in that space as well. So no matter where you go, there they are. So last night I'm, I'm doing some tractor therapy, just kind of chilling and working and praying and thinking about what I'm getting ready to do today. And all of a sudden I noticed, oh, there's a bee. And then one second later, while sitting on my tractor, there were 20 bees. And the thought occurred to me, because I read tractor forums as sort of a hobby right now, what it is that people who operate machinery go through, uh, and there are stories about rolling tractors over, which are horrifying, and they, they've got you know, advice on what to do there. They have stories about how you watch out for people, and they're just different hazards that you uh, can uh, encounter whenever you're working on uh, that kind of machinery or using that kind of machinery. And the one story that they say that uh, I couldn't quite find a good answer for were the people that weighed in on bees. And I thought, well, those are pretty horrifying stories when they talk about it without really good solutions. And I'm like, I'm sure that day will never come. As it turns out, it did. And when 20 bees showed up, I immediately thought about those tractor forums and people getting just stung like crazy. So here's what I did. I'm like, all right, I think I have an answer. So I, when I saw the 20 bees, I stopped the tractor, turned it off, and, and, and then jumped off all in one motion. And then I started, you know, I could have just ran like a little, no offense to you women, but like a little girl or a little boy, I could have just ran off like that. But I stayed, and I fought those bees. And they came at me, and I just punched one, and I'd punch another, and just took them on. I said, come on. No, none of that's true. I ran to my house like a little girl. And I'm embarrassed to say that because they won. And the reason why they won is because, well, that was a group of beings that had alignment. They were all in agreement. And as I'm running to my house as fast as I've ran in a number of years, one of them gets me in the arm. And I'm like, that's not good. Because usually when they, get you, when they get you, it's sort of like a signal to everybody. Right here, right here, right here. I wish you could have seen me run. It probably would have been a YouTube sensation for sure. But you just have to let your imagination take care of all of that. But I got home with just one sting. 
and um, I'm just regrouping right now, trying to figure out how I can attack such a unified force. Because as it stands, they've taken over the hot tub, and they're taking over Christian's property. I have no place to go. But when I come into this place right here, I have to think for a minute about, well, why God made those bees the way he did. Because clearly there was a reason why they were so effective in their concerted effort to defend that one thing that was so sacred to them, and that's their hive. And I think sometimes God puts things right in front of us, whether it's his word or whether it is just how he's designed nature so that we can pay attention and see a few things there that maybe tell us a lot about ourselves. And I'll tell you why we need to know this information. is because the scripture tells us that we are actually living under a heavily influenced domain by none other than the father of lies. And the father of lies has a way of saying that up is down and left is right, and everything that God has established in his beautiful creation is not the way it is. And when you leave here for the rest of the week, you will hear that message in a variety of forms. And I think it, I think it kind of gets to us after a while. And one of the messages that we are having to basically conform to is, well, we have to isolate and one thing I know about bees is they don't isolate very well, do they? They tend to need to stick together. And I've noticed that even whenever I thought I had eliminated one group of antagonists, there were still others who were just kind of hanging out in that space, saying, i got to be with our bees. They couldn't help themselves. And yet, when we leave here, a lot of times we are disconnected, and that disconnection has, it, it has an effect on us, because we have some things going on around us that leave us conflicted. We know that we have friends and family that have gotten sick for a variety of reasons. Many times, it's not even COVID-related. We have things happening in the everyday that have been disruptive, the cancellation of sporting events and things that people look forward to. We've had uh, school disruptions and retooling and trying to make sense out of what would normally be a, a pretty standard way of approaching the school year. We've had not only social isolation and this loss of normal, but we have people that have lost their jobs. We have people that have financial pressure. We have divisive language everywhere you turn, especially through media platforms. It would seem that people are more divided than they ever have been on, you name the front, whether it is social, whether it is recreational, whether it is political, whether it is religious, whether it is family. It seems like all of these forces are kind of getting to us. And then we look at all of this stuff, 
and whatever else may define your world and your particular set of circumstances. And at times we feel like we're kind of losing our grip. And we wonder, is there, is, is there, is there an answer? Is there a way? Is there something we can do? Is there a way out? And I, I, I want you to know that the reason we are in this room is because there is something that we can be anchored in. There is something that we can have hope in. There is something actually that can bring a sense of unity to our lives together as a church because the last thing we want to see in that category of places divided is also First Christian Church also divided like everybody else. But how do we keep that inner turmoil, that inner conflict which creates anxiety, confusion, and frustration, which I don't know if you know this or not, but those are actually the ingredients for anger. When you've got those things kind of brewing and gestating in your, in your soul, you're looking for people to lash out to, not because you particularly are that inclined to lash out at that person for their wrongdoing, you just got to find an outlet. And it's a conflicted state that actually puts us in a place where we just know there's got to be a better way. And one thing I like about coming to church, even though we've had conflicts and we've had things like that, it seems like most of us are here because we figured out a way to work it out. And I just want to look for a minute at something that is on the heart and the mind of God. Because when God looks at what he sees going on under the dominion of the father of lies and how it is influencing all of humanity and even the church and how it has unanchored us, uprooted us, caused us to actually get in the state of anger and anxiety, he knows there's a better way. Sometimes we're so caught up in, in the drama of it all that we forget, we forget even who we are. And I was sharing with the elders the other night how I, I listen to a podcast just so that I can keep my, my mental health in order as a pastor. And it's a, it's a podcast that I think does a really good job of underscoring some biblical ideas that help us to stay rooted in our role with all of this raging on. And essentially, he said, you, you, this, this particular uh, writer, pastor, speaker, person who is an expert in this area, said, you have to stay anchored in your identity so that you can keep your head. And I don't know of any other way to do that than to realize this one thing. When I start to see myself, not as just what I think of myself and my circumstances and how they're impacting me, but as I start to think of myself and see myself as God sees me, I start to believe what he says about me. And I start clinging to that. 
And I find myself rooted and anchored in that identity. Do you know why bees do what they do? Because they don't have any identity issues at all. I, I suspect that the ones that had identity issues, they're all flying around somewhere just off the reservation. But most of them know who they are and what they're supposed to do under any given set of circumstances because they know that they are bees. We, however, forget that we are made in God's image after God's very image. And yet we forget, don't we? And we get lost and we get confused and we get disconnected and then we get divided so I want to just sort of take you to a place that maybe you've been before, but you didn't really see it until maybe even today. And that was, that was when Jesus was here on earth. Believe it or not, in the time that he began his ministry, the people around him had actually some similar issues going on in their lives. Because of the presence of the Roman government, and the fact that if you just stepped a little bit out of line, they would smack you down in a minute. And the fact that they had actually traumatized whole communities of people to make an example out of them. There was an undercurrent of anxiety. There was an undercurrent of frustration. And as a matter of fact, because a lot of the people were religious in the sense that they were, they were, they were Israelites, there was some confusion about why, if God rules, do we have these guys breathing down our, 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 our necks all the time, or worse, they've got the boot of their, of their, uh, 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 their boot on our necks. And it really created an interesting set of circumstances for the everyday people of the land that Jesus lived in. And I want to talk about three people real quickly as he saw them and where they were and how they addressed their identity and their frustrations because I think in some ways maybe we could be one of those three people. Did you know that in Jesus' day, one of the main occupations, especially around the Sea of Galilee, was fishermen? So... You see people on a boat, and you recognize that their livelihood is substantially based on casting nets out in the middle of the night so that they can begin the process of reeling them in and take them to the market in the morning. And there's another group of people that when they look at their occupation, they find that it's a little bit more complicated. They've had to make their peace with their oppressors while at the same time remain Jewish. And this group of people is known as the tax collectors. And this is kind of how a tax collector worked in Jesus' day. A tax collector would basically uh, be a person who would be competing with other tax collectors uh, with a, a Roman governor who would look at a particular tract of area of land or community and say, we want to extract... X amount of denarii or dollars out of that space. Who amongst the tax collector candidates will be the highest bidder to say, well, out of that, out of that space of, let's say, a uh, 1,000 people, we can extract $10 million. I'm being a little bit, you know, exaggerating, but 
And then another person would say, you know what? I think I can extract $11 million out of that thousand group of people. And the other tax collectors who are in this bidding war, because this thing is up for grabs, will say, you know what? I don't know if I can, we can do that. So I guess the, the winning bid goes to that guy. Well, that tax collector happens to actually be a Jewish person who is just looking for a way to be gainfully employed. And when you were a Jewish person, you did pay taxes for sure. You paid taxes to the Roman government because you had to pay tribute. So part of your income went to just a nation that owned you. The other part was when you purchased something, like we purchased something, there were taxes collected there. Then there were taxes collected for the temple, and then there were taxes collected uh, for other offerings, uh, miscellaneous things as well. And so all of this money had to be gathered up by somebody, and usually the candidate was a Jewish person who would take on that role. And then he would hire a team of tax collectors for the specific job of outsourcing that need by, by, by attending to all of those people that would be potential donors to the tax, the tax code. And so what they would do is they would say, okay, I've got to collect so many denarii uh, in order to keep my job so that I can satisfy the tax collector and the Roman government. And at times that tax collector would say, and I've also got to extort a little bit more for myself. So imagine having that job. You'd be pretty wealthy for sure, but I don't know how popular you would be amongst your people. And then there's another group of people, and these guys are called the zealots. And the zealots were looking at what was going on around them, and they were pretty upset because they felt like the Roman government were obviously doing God's people wrong. And their idea was, we got we to gotta do radical things. We have to revolt. We have to push back. We have to find ways of saying, we're not taking this. And so a zealot was usually religiously grounded, pretty harsh and pretty judgmental on everybody around them who weren't zealots. And the whole notion of getting Rome off of their back and actually getting lukewarm people to step up their game was their whole reason for being. And then there was a special group of zealots called the Sicarii. Okay, so you with me so far? Fishermen, tax collectors, sub-tax collectors, zealots, and Sicarii which were essentially assassins. So they would go into the marketplace with a curved knife, and then they would use that curved knife to just kind of sneak up on somebody and sort of do them in under their garment, and they'd walk away, and that person would fall down and collapse, and nobody would know who did it. So you can imagine the differences of opinion that these people would have towards each other. So if I'm a fisherman... I don't really care that much for tax collectors because I'm working hard all night to put food on the table for my family, and then this guy says, uh, we'd like to take about 60% of that and apply it to your debt to society and to um, the temple tax. And those people, 
Well, they just didn't have any use for them. The zealots, on the other hand, they saw them as religious extremists, and if they kept it up, the Romans were going to push back, and they were going to tax them even more. Well, then you have, well, then you have the tax collectors. And they're looking at the fishermen, and they're saying, those guys do not care about our cause. They've sort of caved in, and they're just compliant with the system. And besides that, they're, they're lower class. They're just blue-collar people, and they just don't get it. And when the tax collectors looked at the zealots, they're like, we don't like those people. Matter of fact, they assassinated one of our family members. And so there is a real source of tension brewing between those two occupations. And then there is the zealot who's looking at the fishermen and um, make, make sure I got this right. Uh, he's looking at the fishermen and obviously does not share the same agenda. The zealot is looking at the tax collector and saying, traitor, treasonous, should be their version of shot. All right, now if there was ever a recipe for division, I would say we have it right here in, in the makeup of these occupations as they're coming together. Many of them have their own deeper frustrations and their own deeper anxieties and their own deeper responses to the fact that they are living under their own brand of COVID conditions. And you could even say quarantine in some cases. And it is under those conditions that Jesus shows up. And we read in the Bible that as he's walking in the initial stages of his ministry, Around the community, he's beginning to spot potential candidates for what is going to be a kingdom enterprise that will represent none other than the Messiah. And so we read these words in, um, in Mark chapter 1. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, Casting a net, and this is verses 16 to 18, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, they left everything, and they started following. And then in Mark 1, 19 and 20, it says, And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee and their fishing business, the whole operation, which created a whole other set of family tensions, by the way. And they started following Jesus. And then we read in John one forty four. Now, there are 12 followers here that actually make up Jesus' sort of inner circle of, of disciples that he's training. And it says in John one forty four, and Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So it's speculated that Philip was possibly a fisherman as well. And then we read in Matthew... Chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew 
sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And I'm guessing that includes follow along with us. And he rose and he followed him. And then in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, which we don't know really who they were, as far as their occupation goes, specifically from Scripture, then Simon the Zealot, and also Judas Iscariot, bless you, which it is believed that Judas Iscariot, Iscariot is actually where they get the word Sicari, meaning that he was one of those assassins, quite potentially, it's been argued in, in, in church history, that he was that extreme form of zealot. And I think he latched on to Jesus thinking that finally it is happening and Jesus is going to make it happen and we're going to kick those Romans out and we are going to establish ourselves back to our former glory. And I'm going to be right there alongside Jesus, wielding the power with him. So he had some ambitions for sure. So let's just stop for a minute. Do you remember fishermen and tax collectors and zealots? And all of them said, let's be a team together. Not so much. Because as you read the Gospels, you find that there are little tensions going on there. And some of them wanted to jockey for positions as far as where they were in their rulership of the kingdom. And there was a lot of we, us versus them. And then there was a lot of, well, we're the 12 and we need to shut those people out as well, especially the Gentiles. And there was just this sense of their identity creeping into the true identity that Jesus saw in them when he called them. And what Jesus was doing, because honestly, okay, Let's just stop for a minute. You're Jesus, and you're wanting to create the dream team. Would you take such a volatile group of personalities and put them together and say, we're going to announce the kingdom? And the Pharisees are going to be upset. The Sadducees are going to be upset. A lot of people are going to eventually not like what we're doing, and they're going to push back. But because we're unified as zealots and assassins and fishermen and tax collectors, we know we can take them on, right? It's a pretty ridiculous cadre of people, isn't it? Where's the wisdom in what you're doing, Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. You should have just started with just all fishermen or maybe all zealots or, you know, handpicked a group of people that would get along before you got this thing off the ground. But it seems like Jesus said, no, because as rooted as they are in their identity and those things, what they're going to discover when they follow me 
is there a, there's a deeper identity that they will find themselves anchored in as they follow me. And there will be aspects of that old identity that actually will kind of, kind of you know, get shed so that they can walk into who they are as they hear Jesus say words about them and as they trust those words for their very lives. Now, I don't know about you, but it has been really hard for me to read my Bible during this time. It's hard for me to do it in isolation because a lot of times I read it and I'm thinking about my interaction with people. And a lot of days I have, you know, I have interaction, but it's, it's, it's minimal by comparison. And there are days I, I think you just get kind of, sort of, you just kind of feel lost because you're not really connected to your people. And you sort of get anxious and confused and you kind of wonder. And all of those habits that typically are bundled into a weekly rhythm as we experienced normal in the past, well, they can kind of go by the wayside. But what also goes by the wayside is our engagement with the important things in Scripture that remind us daily who we are in Christ, how we have been purchased by his blood, how we have been adopted into his family, how we've turned away from the things that are ungodly so that we can redirect our hearts and our minds to the things that matter to God and find blessing as a byproduct of that so that we can remember that we are a people called and we are a family and we can just go on down the list of all of the things that define our identity. And you know, I don't know if you're like me, but I, I forget that list more often than I care to admit. But the more I'm connected to the promises of God in the Bible that describe my identity, well, the more anchored I am, the less this stuff throws me around, the less I'm even tempted to fall away. And Jesus saw that if I can anchor tax collectors and fishermen and zealots and basically sinners categorically in a new way of life, that will be a testimony to where my heart really is. And that is reclaiming the lives of these people from the one, the father of lies, who's keeping them captive. If you read the storyline of the Bible, which you have to, you have to follow the plot line in order to know how their identities begin to work out, you'll discover that after they begin following Jesus, it didn't just all go well, like I've got the Lord in my life now, hallelujah, every day I get up and every day is better than the day before. But rather, now that I've got the Lord in my life, I'm facing challenges, I'm facing struggles, I'm facing assaults to my very identity by none other than the father of lies. And I gotta stay rooted. I got to remember who I am, but I also have to stay aligned with the other people that I'm working together with. So I'm going to fast forward to the end of this 
story of the calling of the 12 and tell you how it began to end at least this chapter. Jesus knows that this three-year period that he spent with this group of people unbundling some old ideas about who they were in their identity and re-sort of rewriting the script of who they are in Christ. He's seeing them grow and he's seeing them struggle with it and he's seeing them attached to him and the reality of his kingdom. And then he sees them fall away one after another, after another, after another, after another till he's alone on the cross. And then on that cross, he attacks. He attacks the father of lies who put him on the cross unjustly. And when he gets unjustly accused of all of these things and executed for it, he can legally go to the father of lies and say, you killed an innocent man. You lose. And the rest of my time, whether in spirit or in person, with my people here on earth is just the mopping up, which will take a while. But Jesus has given us this victory in advance over these things so that we can be established in the realities of what the gospel is all about. And every one of the 12 return back to Jesus stronger than ever, committed more than ever, willing to die for him, except for the one who couldn't get his ambitions out of the way and allowed that identity to overshadow the new identity that he should have had in the Lord. But that identity couldn't sustain him under these conditions. And I think without being graphic, his anxiety, his frustration, his anger, his discontentment, and so many other things, including guilt, all balled up, led to his undoing. That's how important it is for us to be rooted in our identity in Christ. And as you and I are going through this whole experience, I, I can't underscore this enough, that we have to cling to him. And as he's looking at each of us, knowing that you and I and you guys online are the reason why he went through with it. It's that important to him so that he could claim us for himself and we could live in the truth of that reality. But every week, you and I have to fight tooth and nail the father of lies who's dishing out a lot of stuff that is just simply not true. Now, I won't go into all of that, only to say that there are lots of scripts out there that tell us what to do, what to think, how we compare ourselves to other people, what we're worth, what we're not worth, on and on, that are just from the pit of hell. And the only way to process who I am, how I compare to other people, how much I'm worth, how much God cares for me is through his word. But if we were disconnected from his word, we lose our way. 
Now, I have heard this about bees. They say that if you create a smoke screen, they get confused, and you can do whatever you need to do. So I think I'm going to try that, but I wasn't good with matches whenever I was a kid, and they ended up calling the fire department. Thankfully, nobody got hurt. But it's an extreme measure, isn't it? And I think that when the smoke screen gets in the way, we are not united as a people. We are not rooted in our identity. But the word of God is the basis by which we kind of clear the air and see things as they are. I'm really looking forward to the next installment of this message because I want to talk about how we can do that specifically. But for now, I just want to encourage you to stay rooted and grounded in your identity in Christ, to stay unified as a church body. Because when Jesus said, I'm getting ready to go, I'm praying to you, Father, please help them. And so he says this in verse 20 of John 17, praying for these people that he's called and come to know and love so dearly. And I would say praying for you and I. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me. That is, he prayed this prayer for us, anticipating this through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I, you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me. And then get this. Verse 23, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you have sent me. Our world is a train wreck right now of division, and that ain't from God. Our church will become a train wreck of division as well if we don't guard our identity in Christ carefully. If we don't do the best that we can to keep the unity. And I don't know if you know why we are a Christian church, but I'll just say this in closing. We started as a unity movement where people who were arguing and divided and fighting all the time, the people that construct, help be this brand of a church, wanted to focus on that prayer and ask the question, how can we be unified? And so you know what? The, drawing from church history, they said this, in opinions, liberty. That is, in opinions, liberty. People can have opinions about things and we need to give them that. But we live in a moment where social media says, I have a platform, I have an opinion, and your opinion is not as good as my opinion. And our tradition has said, in opinions, liberty. And there's a lot of things that we come to the Bible and we have questions and opinions and things like that. 
that in the broad scheme of things, we'll never really get clarity on. But the other thing they said was, in essentials, unity. And by that, I, I, we've taken that to mean the birth of Jesus as through, through the Virgin Mary, the life of Jesus through his incarnation here on earth, the death of Jesus on the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus after he was in the tomb for three days, and then the lordship of Jesus after he was seated on the throne when he returned to the Father. Those are, that is like kryptonite to the father of lies. It is the thing that wilts the lies because the truth and the reality of your life and mine is centered in those essentials. That's what keeps us together. So in opinions, liberty, in essentials, unity, and in all things, love. Love. I was on social media the other day, and instead of flaming the person that I wanted to be critical of, I just shared the love. I was in church the other day, and I had a different opinion about that person that, well, they didn't see things like I did. We agreed to disagree because it wasn't essential, and we shared the love. It's just one powerful way of staying connected, aligned, unified, anchored, grounded in the reality of Jesus. If a zealot, <laughs> sounds like a joke, you know, a zealot and a tax collector and fisherman went into a bar. <laughs> Better yet, the three groups went before Jesus and recovered their birthright that was stolen from them. And they discovered who they truly were. And I'm just ending this by saying, we want to give your birthright back to you. We want to help you find that sense of who I am as God sees me. And we want you to discover that it's a lot different than the lies you've been told. And maybe it just means I got to turn away from that so I can turn towards him. And we want to lead you there. Maybe it means I need to get baptized so that I can say once and for all, I've made a definitive decision to be aligned with him and his people. Maybe it means that I've been sort of caught up in the lies and I need to get grounded and anchored. Otherwise, I'm going to go bonkers. Maybe it's, I need to be like the bees. Busy about the thing that's the most important to me. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this part of the message, I pray for our people, Lord, you love every one of us. You brought your son into the world to claim us. And yet so many of us are deceived and are maybe just seeing the smoke clear. And I pray for those who are being drawn into your kingdom that they would move into that space where they're turning away from the things that have kept them captive and being drawn into the things that are keeping them rooted and anchored in your hope.
Help us, Father, I pray, as uh, we seek to be drawn into your presence, to be one in Christ, and to know that we are a new creation in him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being with us and for the time and the attention of those who are here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right now, I'd like for us to just take our communion cups and we fast forward to that place where Jesus has accomplished his work. People have started to respond, but they know it's a struggle. And the one thing that reminds us every week of our identity in Christ is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus the way that that has served to claim you and I, the pathway for forgiveness, perhaps the necessary self-evaluation that leads to repentance. Whatever God is calling you to think about and meditate on, let's do that right now as we take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we pray that you bless this loaf and this cup, that as we take it, it would fill us with your presence in the way that these symbols embody your life and your spirit in so many rich ways inhabits our being. We just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. we've emphasized the unity of the body, especially around this table. That's actually a defining feature of our tradition for that very reason. And there are other churches right now that are doing the exact same thing, claiming their identity and recognizing that we are not alone. And specifically, there are other churches I know right now that are praying for a couple of people that I, I'm asking you guys as a favor uh, to be praying for uh, with them and with us as well. And that is for Bob and Linda Martin. Some of you may not know them, but if you do know them, you know how difficult this moment is for those two. And uh, it is pretty close to home for some of us. What I'd like for us to do is just be in agreement as I lift up a prayer for them. And then after that, the praise team is going to close us out in worship. Would you bow with me? Our Father, as we lift up our friends, our brother and sister in Christ, Bob and Linda Martin, we pray that you would surround them with your angels. As you prepare to call Linda home, I pray, Father, that you would just give her that sense that you're with her. Lord Jesus, when she passes that threshold from this life to life with you, I pray that you would be there to embrace her, to lead her across the chasm, 
and to provide a peace that passes all understanding for her and for her family. We thank you, Father, that they carry and embody a living hope that does not perish, spoil, or fade. And yet in this moment, there is a heaviness and there's a grief that is already being felt. And yet there is underneath that, this sense that this is not the last word. So please just minister to them, help them in whatever your purposes are in this moment, and then provide for them, Lord. And I just pray that prayer for our people as well as we face our own struggles, as we leave here, as we attend to the responsibilities of praying for one another and helping one another and encouraging one another, defending one another, supporting one another. We lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand if you'd like.
Peace. Have a nice week.